Welcome back to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. I'm your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist and small business owner. Today, I am joined by Logan Aries Snyder, owner and lead strategist at Has Optimization, a small business-focused marketing agency based in central New Hampshire. They take particular pride in serving nonprofits and businesses owned by marginalized people and spend their limited free time as a guardian ad litem with CASA. Throughout our conversation, Logan and I discuss how to launch a small business out of freelance work, what true community looks like, and why holding room for understanding others is so important. Logan's story is one of resilience, compassion, and the belief in the power of change. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm so excited for this conversation today. I don't remember exactly how we first connected, but I think it was like we met up in a Facebook group or something. I needed something for a client and you were like, hey, I do this thing. And then we've just been in each other's orbit, which makes me really happy. Yeah, I don't really remember either. Uh, I mean, that's like the best, best origin stories for sure. So, Logan, you are the owner and lead strategist at Has Optimization, a small business focused on doing marketing um, based in central New Hampshire. And your clients really are from a variety of industries, but you really do specialize in serving nonprofits and businesses owned by marginalized people. And, you know, you do all sorts of other amazing things like ride horses, sing, volunteer as a guardian ad litem, all of these wonderful things that we'll have a chance to cover throughout our conversation today. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to add? No, uh, that's a... Pretty good summary of uh, what I do most days. I could list off like 16 other things that I get into. Sometimes people ask me what I've been up to lately. I'm like, um, here's like 87 things that I've been doing. Too many things. I'm the same way too. That's just kind of how that goes. I think that like those of us, especially those of us who own our own businesses, like we have the freedom to be able to have our hands in a lot of different things. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we do. Some of us are bad at saying no to things. I resonate with that quite a bit. <laughs> um, one of the things when we were talking before that I was so interested in is how you came to do the work that you do right now, because you have a fun, like circuitous journey to that moment. And I think that it's fun for other folks to hear that just because so many people think that like life should be so straightforward and should be like A, B, C, D. And it like never happens like that. It's much more squiggly. Um, so I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background. And how yeah, you that's there. totally, totally true. I actually had that conversation with a friend yesterday. We were sort of talking about how bizarre it is that people are, you know, sort of quote unquote, meant to figure out what they're doing with their life when they're like 17, like you're going off to college. I'm going to get a degree in this and that's what I'm going to do. And like, you know, man, I'm staring down the barrel of 40 and going like, that's really not how life works at all. Um, so I went to college with the idea that I was going to, to go down a path in psychology. I actually originally thought that I was going to go into criminal profiling, which would probably mean working for the FBI. And in retrospect, I would not really do well in working for a government agency or a law enforcement agency. Although, as, as I mentioned when I was talking to my friend yesterday, if you're going to work for a law enforcement agency, one that's focused on finding murderers is really like kind of where it's at. That's, that's the most useful sort of law enforcement agency overall. Um, we probably need that. So I, I went to Smith College. I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. I got kind of burnt out by the end of it. 
I was just sort of out of energy for academia. You know, I'd done nothing but get good grades for like basically my entire life. Um, so I graduated in 2008, um, and in an attempt to kind of get out of my comfort zone, um, I moved to California, to Los Angeles, originally with a job in hand, um, doing user experience design for websites. And I actually worked on the, uh, American Idol website that probably launched in like 2009. That was like my resume party piece for many years, actually. Um, That site is probably long gone by now. So I graduated. I moved to California. I had this job. And then the economy collapsed. And unemployment actually hit 12% in Los Angeles at some point in, in that next year or so. And I couldn't get a job anywhere. I lost lost the job that I moved out there with um, and... I I was more or less totally unemployed for the better part of a year. I ended up doing a whole variety of things. I was a tutor. I was a uh, Princeton Review SAT teacher. That was an interesting gig. I became certified as a therapeutic horseback riding instructor and uh, put disabled kids and some non-disabled kids uh, on horses for like 20 hours a week for not enough money. But uh, it was a lot of fun. After, you know, a significant chunk of of time unemployed, a friend of mine reached out, said she was trying to get out of a contract job that she had in search engine optimization. She posted something up on Facebook like, hey, guys, I'm leaving this job. Um, Is anyone interested in this? I can make an introduction. And I was like, oh, me, because at the time I knew basically nothing about SEO. And I said, oh, this sounds kind of similar related (laughs) to the work that I was doing in user experience design that I actually, I was good at information architecture. I was good at UX. Um, And I, there's another world, you know, in the multiverse where I kept doing that and probably became really good at it, but um, that's not this timeline. So, you know, long story short, I got hired to do search engine optimization as a contractor for this agency based out of La Jolla. And over the next couple of years, went from being their like part-time SEO content writer to kind of running most of the agency. I was, you know, their primary project manager. I hired most of their other staff or like was involved in hiring most of their other staff. I was meeting with like international e-commerce outfits and telling them that their analytics were set up wrong all kinds of stuff. And uh, I continued working with them for the next few years, but they never wanted to hire me as an employee and, you know, give me health insurance and that kind of stuff. So I kind of looked Mm. at this situation where, you know, I'm paying my own taxes, the government thinks I'm a business. Uh, I'm going to pick up my own clients. So when I saw a post from a fellow Smith College alum on LinkedIn looking for this kind of help, I said, hey, I can do that. And then she introduced me to someone else and, you know, I picked up another client from somewhere else and just gradually collected my own private client base that was paying me better than the agency was. And, you know, at some point moved back to New Hampshire and decided after I moved, I was going to really, you know, try to make a go of it as my own company and ultimately probably get out of working for the agency, which I did. I started getting really into networking and uh, gradually built up a client base to the point that, you know, the agency was, you know, less than a third of my business and 
And what ultimately ended up happening was I sort of gradually stopped working for them. They paid me a little bit more and I worked less. And, you know, a few years later, I was not really working for them at all. And that was almost 10 years ago now. I filed the LLC for has optimization in 2013. So like I kind of say that 2023 was our 10 year anniversary, but I've been doing this for you know more like 13 years. And we've grown from, you know, just me to like just me and some contractors to now we currently have three full-time employees plus myself. And we've expanded services from content and SEO to building websites, running social media, running advertising. And, you know, my personal, personal specialty is in analytics and PPC work. So we serve all kinds of small businesses, nonprofits, um, some slightly larger businesses, um, you know, often as kind of an adjunct to a larger marketing agency or their internal marketing department, that kind of thing. We love troubleshooting. Probably the mm. biggest thing that keeps me stuck at my desk into the evenings is when there's a problem I can't solve because, man, I love solving a problem. It's But you going down those rabbit holes is like, that's one of the best parts of being a business owner is being able to like, is to pick those rabbit holes you go down it like most traditional jobs would not allow like would just be like nope gotta like give it up and do something else or whatever like yeah but we have the power we have the actual somebody else i probably wouldn't let them spend as much time solving those problems (laughs) as i allow myself to sometimes when the staff can't solve something i'm just like i'm gonna go try and solve it because you know, if, if I spend four hours at this and ultimately can't find a solution, I'll just shrug and eat the time and not charge them for it. But if I do solve yeah. it, like, then the problem will be solved. And then that goes into the, like, the the bank of, like, things yeah. you can solve. Totally. <laughs> things you know how to solve now, which is great. One of the things we've talked about before is just this idea of being, like, an anti-capitalist yeah. running a business. And... It's it's one of those things I, I think about a lot is just like being an entrepreneur, running a business, and also being like capitalism <laughs> fucks everybody over and is like this terrible system that we're living in that we can't escape from, you know, really and truly unless we up and leave. But that being said, I wouldn't have it any other way. So tell me, tell me how yeah, you approach I mean, that. that's such like a big and interesting question. But yeah, I, I do kind of <laughs> consider myself an, an anti-capitalist business owner, which feels sometimes like an oxymoron. Like they, there's there's the thing that people say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. And there's also probably no ethical mm. business management under capitalism. I mean, we're all just trying to survive this system at the end of the day. And yeah, you know, as individuals, we have relatively little power to affect the system as a whole. We can only really affect the things that we can touch. And I've sort of taken the same kind of tactic in, in my involvement in politics, which is to say, I don't try to run for Senate, but I'm on the planning board. You know, I'm, I'm affecting the things that I can affect with the time and the resources that are available to me. So, you know, as, as a business owner, I, I, you know, I try to engage in capitalism as ethically as is possible. You know, I'm, I try not to sell people things that they don't need. I try to charge fair prices. I try to pay my staff as well as possible. You know, you look at like the CEO to worker price pay ratios and stuff. I don't pay myself 
very much more than my staff. And sometimes I feel guilty about paying myself any more than my staff because that's not how much I am. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I, you know, lived <laughs> in Los Angeles poverty for a few years trying to build this. So I'm not going to feel too guilty about that aspect either. Um, you know, but it's like I make a few thousand dollars more a year than my best paid staff on salary. And then if we make a profit, that's great. And if we don't, well, you know, I have to eat that as the business owner. So that's that's the risk. We also take a lot of pride in working with marginalized business owners and, you know, with nonprofit organizations and other people who are not always super well served by marketing, which is, you know, certainly one of the most capitalist of the uh, organizational structures one could have in a business, ironically. But we work with a lot of business owners who are, you know, BIPOC or LGBTQ or, you know, otherwise marginalized. Like we have one of our, our um, nonprofits is actually run by somebody who's blind. Like business owners who are disabled are also mm. kind of in that category. You know, we try to make sure that people who might not necessarily have access to our level of services, you know, at other agencies can get access to it here. We even donate some services to some organizations here and there. I and everyone who works here, like we want to be able to like look ourselves in the face in the mirror and feel decent about what we do for a living, despite the fact that, yeah, we all are living in this capitalist hellscape. So, you know, we, we want to run things as, you know, ethically as we can and, you know, to try and make the world at least a slightly better place where we can do what you are capable of doing with the things that you can affect. I've also made a point of hiring kind of like a, a diverse and um, interesting staff here. We, we have a lot of staff who are queer and neurodivergent and, you know, trans like myself. Um, and that's, that's a space that I've I've tried to to make for my people is a space where it's safe to be yourself and to bring yourself to work. One of the things I know you've had a hand in, a big hand in, is like creating the Affirming Spaces project, you know, and that that website and just I and I'm a ASP community partner, you know, I do you want to talk I about that a little love bit? That that's project. a really cool project. Yeah. So the ASP Affirming Spaces Project is is this website that kind of acts as a directory of businesses that have not only you know sort of hand raised yes I'm I'm cool with queer and trans people but have actually gone through ASP's little training program to you know make sure that you have the basic 101 skills of being good to your your LGBTQ clientele and staff and so on and so forth. That was a project that I wanted to do. Like I wanted to create that site for years and was like, I don't have time to do this properly. I don't have time to do this project justice. And then some people that I know connected me with people who wanted to do this and actually had some time and resources and like a collection. I was like, this is fantastic. I am so glad that somebody else is doing this. I would love to work with you on it. I don't have time to do it for like myself, but I'm thrilled that someone else is doing it. So ultimately, um, they contracted Has Optimization to build the site for them. And we also, you know, threw in a lot of extras and I, I donated a fair whack of time uh, to that project because I, I just wanted to see the project get off the ground more than anything else. Um, I was delighted that they were able to pay us to build the website because it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, it's got some interesting bells and whistles on it. 
it's such a cool project. And so we got to be kind of like the first business on that site because we built the site. So we were like the, um, the, the like trial run for a business listing was all of our data because we knew we were going to be on it no matter what. Great group of people. And the I think it's still up. The photo that's on their homepage, I actually took because uh, my, my partner, Felipe, came out to um, Wrong Brain in Dover, yeah, um, in to, Dover. to do like a, a photo shoot basically of trans people shopping to fill in the site and you know took a ton of pictures of a whole bunch of us who were involved in the project like like at the end of the day I was shooting some random shots with his camera while he was literally buying something for real from Sam and for whatever reason the picture that ended up fitting best in the homepage was one that I actually took so it's just kind of a funny moment we took so many pictures and the one that ended up getting kept is the one that I snapped I'm so glad that those spaces yeah. exist for folks like it, you know, and for folks like me, because I'm a queer person, too. And it like was when I finally came out in my 30s. The only reason why I was able to come out was because I had a group of people who I knew like loved and and accepted me. And it made it so easy to be able to like mm-hmm. finally say it out loud. And it was and that and that's and all of those same people are like connected to wrong brain. That's how I learned about wrong brain and so on and so forth. I had lived for Dover for like probably a decade before I knew about, you know, about wrong brain or or even just had like a queer community to be able to like connect with. And I was just so grateful for that. Like I look back at my life, how, you know, six years ago and it was completely different and and I credit so much of like the positive change to being hmm. part of this community. It's amazing. And so affirming spaces is just one of those. It's just like the cherry on the yeah. top of the Sunday. You know what I mean? It makes it so much more ex- like all of those spaces are now accessible to people. Yeah, I think those they, they have a really great goal. And I think it is awesome that they're not only, you know, sort of taking self-report data, but also like doing the hard work of teaching people. Because that's, you know, as a trans person, having to just educate people all the time is a lot. It's a lot of weight to carry. And I absolutely understand the people who are, who, who say things like, it's not my job to educate you. And I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I get, I get why people feel that way. For me, I always feel like, it's my responsibility to educate people so that other people don't have to, because I can handle it and not everyone can. And that's especially true when you know we're talking about, say, like young people, people just come out or anyone who's not as sort of secure in their identity or not as assertive or, you know, not as like mentally tough. Like, and there's tons of people out there for whom educating people about their identity or about trans 101 stuff is just too much. That's, I feel like as someone who feels like they can handle doing that, I have a responsibility to do some of it so that other people don't have to. So the people who can't handle it don't have to handle it. And ASP is doing a big whack of trans 101 for exactly the sort of people who need it to make those day-to-day public interactions just a little bit easier for trans people and gender non-conforming people generally. 
and I try to do my best part, you know, as part of all of that as well. Like I've gotten everyone on my tra- team trained, you know, like on gone have gone through the training. Um, I do the training every year. I know there's just like new slides that came out too, because like I don't just because I'm part of the community doesn't sure. mean that I know everything. Like, yeah. So it's been really, it's been such an amazing resource. And I send people there all the time too, like just to be like, go learn, like go check this all out, like get, you know, up to speed on all of this because it does make everybody feel better. There's a lot of folks I think who are just avoid it because they're afraid mm-hmm. of like saying the wrong thing or whatever. And it's like, that's, yeah. that doesn't lead to a more accepting world. <laughs> if you're just too scared to talk. I did a, about a sort of, you know, an AMA and ask me anything session with some of the volunteers at CASA because that's exactly people don't feel comfortable asking questions. And if you don't ask questions and learn new things, you just stay stuck with your old assumptions or attitudes or what have you. And again, I feel like, you know, I have a little bit of a responsibility to do some of the education so that, you know, in this case, so that kids don't have to do that education with their guardian ad litem. Uh, That's like, that's, Like, talk about, like, doing just such, like, tremendous good in the world by doing that. And I I would love for you to talk a little bit more about CASA and just, you know, we had talked about it before. Like, I I knew of CASA, but I didn't know exactly kind of, like, what exactly what the program was. And I think a lot of people don't know. Um, And it's part of a system that just doesn't, that is oftentimes invisibilized. So I'm really excited for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so CASA is uh, court-appointed special advocates um, of New Hampshire. And the organization is contracted by the state to provide volunteer uh, guardians ad litem for kids who are involved in the juvenile family court system due to usually parental abuse or neglect. So, you know, kids in in New Hampshire don't necessarily get an attorney if their family is involved in an abuse or neglect case. The parents get an attorney. The state has an attorney. The kid themselves does not. They get what's called a guardian ad litem. And here in New Hampshire, those are mostly volunteers through CASA. And the role of the guardian ad litem is to... You know, meet with the kid, get to know the kid, and write court reports and actually come to court and speak with the goal of specifically addressing the kid's best interests. So, you know, not, you know, not so much focused on like, what does the law say? And, you know, not focused on, you know, the rights of the parents, which is, you know, the job of the parent's attorney, but specifically focused on what here is the kid's best interest in all of this, which might or might not be like directly aligned with any other specific interests in the thing. And I've been, I've been working with CASA for about five years now. I started as a guardian ad litem in 2018. Um, so I've, I've taken a maybe a half dozen or so cases over those five years. Um, most of the cases you're with for at least a year. And yeah, we, we meet the kids, talk to the kids, some of them are thrilled to hang out with us, some of them are not, um, and write reports for the court and go to court and actually talk in front of a judge, which is definitely scary the first couple of times you do it and gets easier. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, I'm one of a, a very small number, I think maybe two or three trans-identified guardians ad litem um, with CASA of New Hampshire and 
I believe I'm still the only non-binary identified guardian ad litem with Cosm New Hampshire. So uh, I've I've got a little bit of a reputation in the organization as like, oh, we have a, a, a trans kid. Let's talk to Logan about it. Oh, well, that's definitely how I picked up one of my more recent cases. I, I had a, basically a full caseload and then I got a phone call that was like, we have a trans teenager that really needs an advocate. Would you please? Oh, and, you know, I, I kind of love being able to be that for them again, because, you know, I feel like I'm doing a public service by you know being that person who can have those conversations with the organization and, you know, the person who that they can send to the house of a trans teenager and know that I'm, I'm going to get it. Um, I'm going to be able to relate to them and not ask that kid a, you know, offensive question or what have you. And, you know, I, I appreciated the opportunity to, to do kind of the basic education for other CASAs as well, because, you know, the things that we as, you know, young-ish, um, not as young as we once were, um, LGBTQ people who are like in the, you know, in the space with other queer people a lot, we don't necessarily realize exactly how ignorant the general public is about what seems really basic to us. Yeah. You know, like just as a casual example, like most, you know, most LGBTQ people know that you say transgender, not transgendered, but non-queer yeah. people, especially those who are, you know, closer to our parents' age than their own, they don't know that. They have no idea that that's like not a thing that we say anymore. Um, or, you yeah. know, any other termino terminology, especially like what's correct changes fairly quickly. And if you're not in the community, People just don't know. They literally have no idea. They don't mean to be offensive, mm -hmm. but they're really ignorant of like what the current cultural norms are. So, you know, I, I found myself answering questions about like, okay, wait, so what's the difference between like gender identity and sexual orientation? And that I'm like, that's so, yeah. all right. I've got to go way back to the beginning here with this question, <laughs> you know, and, and nobody like everyone wants to be doing the best things. Like nobody gets into this work without really wanting to help kids and help families, but they just don't have any connection to that element of queer culture. Like they, it's just not directly relevant to their lives. So they don't know. So I, I think we should run, you know, more of those sessions. I think there's there's a lot of people out there who just really need need somebody that they can ask their possibly offensive questions to. And again, this is what comes back to like I always feel like I have a responsibility to do some education because I can. It doesn't hurt me. I'm not, you know, like I might go like, okay, that's a little bit of an offensive question, but I'm not going home and, you know, having a mental breakdown about it because doesn't hurt me. I'm, I'm, I'm not bothered by this. My, th my skin's thicker than that. Not everyone's yeah. is, and that's fine. Um, so five, five years with Casa, um, it's not an easy volunteer gig. It's definitely not all like feel good all the time. Sometimes it's really hard and painful. And, you know, the people that you are working with and talking to are often going through some of the most difficult, painful, awful stuff of their lives. Um, and 
you know, sometimes people make big turnarounds. They, you know, recognize that they've kind of hit bottom in some respect and, you know, they make the changes in their life to make their family functional and able to move forward. And sometimes they can't for all kinds of reasons. You know, New Hampshire has a really serious um, opioid abuse problem and it's really hard for people to kick that habit even when they're, you know, backed up against a wall. It's not easy stuff. Um, And, you know, so sometimes our job is to say, hey, it's, you know, despite the fact that this parent loves this kid and kid loves their parent, it's not in the kid's best interest to live with this person because they aren't able to take care of themselves right now. And if you're not able to take care of yourself, you can't really take care of a kid either. And sometimes we have a really, really good day and we get to say, hey, this person's made a huge turnaround and, you know, we think this kid should go back home. Or sometimes, you know, it's, it's well, unfortunately, this, this kid's parents couldn't, couldn't make it happen, but, you know, we were able to find them a really good adoptive home. And sometimes that's, that's the win you get. You get to see a lot of, like, nuance yeah. and complexity within the within the system, within people, you know, within family systems, like that's, it's got to like affect you in some big ways. It's a tough, tough gig sometimes. It's definitely one that takes a certain amount of like mental and emotional toughness, you know, because you you have to, you have to have a lot of compassion for people and a lot of empathy for people. Um, And you have to really be open to the idea that people can change. You know, and you always have to kind of hope for the best for people because, you know, how they how how they were when they met you, because we meet people when they are at that rock bottom point where like DCYF is going, hey, you know, you have a serious problem here. And if it doesn't improve right quick, we're going to have to remove your kids or we're removing your kids right now and figuring the rest out later. Um, So we meet people when they're at that rock bottom point and you have to remain open to the idea that they are going to find the strength and the will to change and improve themselves and, you know, move forward in a better direction. Because some people do. Some people really, truly do. And that's, you know, that's always our best case scenarios is, is that people really take advantage of the resources that being involved in these, you know, terrible situations where now you've got the state involved in your family life that that gives you access to some resources that people don't necessarily have access to otherwise. And if people really lean into that and take advantage of the opportunities, it it is life-changing for people. Like we do see that happen. And I really wish that, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services had the funding and the resources and the human power to be able to make more of those resources available to people before they really hit rock bottom. I think that's one of the most unfortunate things about the way the system is currently designed is that people just either don't know that the resources are out there or don't have a way of accessing resources like, you know, say parenting classes or drug abuse programs or any of that sort of thing. They don't have access to that until DCYF is coming in and going, hey, there's a big problem here and there's going to be a court case. And that's unfortunate, you know, because that's on a timeline and the clock is ticking. 
And that keeps people from taking advantage of resources that are available to them because, you know, they, they don't, they don't want to admit that they have a problem in their life and, you know, taking advantage of the resources means admitting that you need the resources, which means admitting that there's something wrong. That's hard. I've always thought of shame as being a really shitty motivator, you know, for, to create changes, but it's like, it, you know, I think what you were just saying about like having compassion for folks is so important. And, you know, my, my brother, um, was, you know, an opioid user for, you know, a long time and has now been able to be off of it for, for a number of years. And it's, it took a lot to see him through that whole phase of things. And I think I don't, I, you know, now I've, I've worked with, um, New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition Mm -hmm. as a, they were a client of mine. And it's, even though I had already been shifting my understanding of, you know, substance use disorder and, and, um, and the opioid epidemic and everything and, and understanding it in a different light, that really pushed me to understanding it even more, more in depth. And I really just wish that people could have that kind of compassion Mm -hmm. for people who are going through, like you said, like the worst parts of their lives and it's affecting everything and it's affecting the kids it's affecting the people around them and it's and it's not just that they're shitty people who can't do right you know what i mean like that's not that kind of a mentality and and a and kind of thought process no, doesn't really doesn't anybody. and you know in so many situations there's also you know comorbid mental health issues and you know oftentimes it's generational it's like you know the grandparents like had problems and then the parents have problems and then you're trying to keep the kids from having the same problems and yeah it's it's tough and yeah I think I think one of the real real sticky bits is that you know the public tends to see these things as kind of personal failings it's like you know oh this this thing is messed up in your life and it's your fault yeah and you know, yeah, everyone's got choices in their life, but we don't make choices in a vacuum. You know, we're, we're all living in this world together and we've built, you know, a world in which it's hard to get access to treatment. It's hard to get access to mental health care. And if you don't have money or you don't have time or you're trying to manage this while also raising like four kids as possibly a single parent, like, that's an incredible stack of barriers between someone and the change that they might really want to make in their life. But there's just this huge brick wall of problems that they might not be able to get past on their own. And yeah. I'm, you know, like you, I've, I have a family member who's been down a similar path and has you know managed to make real change in their life. And it's, really, really important to remain open to the idea that people can change. You know, having a drug abuse problem or you know, whatever problem, it's not forever. It's not, that's not who that person is. It's a problem that they're experiencing. And, you know, I think if you give people the grace of assuming that with enough support, they can make real change in their life, some people will it's like incredibly powerful work and incredibly important work that you're doing with CASA. I'm glad that they have someone like you there, you know, you know, helping the kids through those, through those really hard moments. And then in holding the space for that kind of change, that's huge. 
Thanks. I mean, you know, it's it's a great organization, and I really encourage people, you know, who who feel called to do it to to check it out, consider volunteering. You know, it's it's not an insignificant time commitment, and it's a tough thing for people to do if they have a full time job with a regular schedule because you do have to be in court a few times a year. You know, and and it's not for everyone. It it's emotionally difficult sometimes, but if it's something that that feels interesting to you, talk to them because. It's a really valuable thing. And it's a really worthwhile thing. And I know that they would very much like to see a more diverse coalition of CASAs, you know, younger, non-white, queer, um, all of those things. Because, you know, due to the nature of the work, it, it's dominated by people who are retired. You know, it's, it's mostly older, relatively mm-hmm. affluent, mostly white people. And it would be really good for the organization to have a, a, you know, a CASA base that more reflected the people that we tend to be working with. Most of the parents of kids that that I work with are more or less my age. And, you know, sometimes they have teenage Mm -hmm. kids, which feels wild to me. You know, most most of the parents I've worked with are are within, you know, five or so years of, of my age. But most of the CASAs that I know and even the supervisors that I know are upwards of 60, so closer to my parents' age. So, yeah, like it's not for everyone, but they do a fantastic training for you. You go through 40 hours of training to do this, and they're really, really good about supporting their volunteers. Uh, You know, I've worked with a bunch of different supervisors, and they have all... 100% of them, they've been fantastic about, you know, telling me that I was doing a good job, giving me good feedback, telling me that I'm appreciated. They send you cards. Like, it's Mm. not a volunteer gig where, you know, you feel like you're kind of just like churned through the system. Like, you really do get the sense that you're appreciated by your supervisors and by the organization. And that feels really good, especially for me as as a business owner. As a business owner, you don't like have a supervisor, you know, you might get some good feedback from your clients and like, you know, maybe you you get some positive feedback from your team or what have you. But, you know, it's not like working a a regular job where you've got, you know, a supervisor who's going to give you a performance review or whatever. So you you don't get a lot of kind of Mm. external input from somebody who's, who's objective on the matter going, you're doing a good job. Thank you for being here. And so... That's something I particularly value about my CASA supervisors is that there's, no, you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. You're doing good work here. You know, sometimes, sometimes you really need that. And I think it's really, really important for, you know, an organization like this. The volunteers work hard. It is a tough gig. It's an important gig. It's a rewarding gig, but it's hard. And I think it's really, really valuable that they make sure that the supervisory team takes the time to really appreciate the volunteers because yeah it it would be really hard without that like the families that you work with mostly aren't going to give you that because the kids the kids either like don't really get it because they're too young or what have you or the teenagers half the time they just want you out of their hair um you know (laughs) the the families are often just irritated that you're involved in their life in the first place, which is understandable. Oh, so, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the feedback that you, that you get that keeps you going often comes from the supervisors every once in a while from, from like the judges, which is sort of nice. They, they're a really good organization to work for. They take good care of their people. 
Yeah, it's I'm I'm glad you put a little plug in there for and we'll definitely make sure we put that into the show I notes plug too, all the time. to be able to check it out some more because I know I like it's you should be there. They have person. a person who is <laughs> good at her job, job, who is actually like the, the public outreach person. <laughs> um, her name escapes me right now, but they've actually um, had had me come to like networking events and stuff to to like be the, the active volunteer like CASA rep for things. So yeah. Uh, because they, they know I'll just nice. talk of the organization all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, the every organization wants a volunteer like you. <laughs> like that respect. You know, as we're starting to wrap up, you know, what does it mean to you to give a damn? Oh, yeah. Something I ask everybody. Oh, that's such like a, a big question. I ha- I always have to feel like I'm doing the best I can. I think that's that's definitely a big element of it. I always have to feel like I am putting forth my best effort on the things that I do, even when that's hard. Like it's really important to me to to show up and to do the things that I've said that I was going to do. Like that's an element of of like integrity to me, and my personal integrity is very very important to me. It's important to me to do what I say. I've I've do what I say that I will do, and you know, to be honest with people and to put forth the best effort that I can in things. And, you know, as, as I've mentioned a couple of times, it's important to me to feel like I'm giving something to my community, you know, to my local community, to my queer community, um, you know, sometimes to my alumni community. But I think that's, that's like the living in a society thing. Like you, you if you're not, contributing something to your community what are you even doing because your community is always going to be contributing Mm. something to you that's the nature of living in a society and I think we all have something that we can give to our communities and that looks different for everybody I'm sure there's some people out there you're going to hear this and go oh well I don't have anything to offer like I promise you do have something to offer to somebody else in your community and that can come in all kinds of forms, like, you know, bringing over your extra boxes to someone who's moving is contributing to your community. Running for office is contributing to your community. Giving to charity is contributing to your community. But there's big ways and there's small ways, and everyone's got something that they can give to their community, to their world, to the people around them. And, and that's something that's really important to me is to feel like I'm giving something to the world around me. That's like absolutely beautiful. And it makes me just happy to hear you say that. And I think it's, it summarizes it so well, like, you know, your community is always going to be giving back to you. So Mm -hmm. how are you going to give back to the community? It gives me goosebumps. We're all living in this closed (laughs) terrarium we call a planet, you know, like, I think that's one of the things that humans tend to really forget is that like, we are all connected and we're all living in what is essentially a limited resource environment. This is what we've got. This planet is what we've got. And there's not a whole lot coming in from outer space. And there's not a whole lot leaving either. So this this is, we're a terrarium in a bottle. You know, we've all got to kind of be part of, part of the system. I mean, you're part of the system whether you want to be or not. What, what are you, you going to do, do with, with your one wild and beautiful life? Well, that feels pretty the perfect stopping point is to leave on a Mary Oliver. <laughs> I'm like, who am I stealing this quote from? But 
Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The great Mary Oliver. Logan, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such an amazing conversation and took all the twists and turns I was hoping it was going to. And, you know, I'm just so glad to know you to be in relationship with you. And just, it was so amazing to have the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a very fun chat and we always have good conversations when we talk. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary-Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com.